0: Lesson 1 for June 27 to July 3, The Missionary Nature of God. Before reading the lesson, let's read the introduction to the whole series. It's titled, The Great Commission. In writing this series of lessons, we have two men involved. There was Borge Swartz, PhD from Fuller University, was a professor at Loma Linda University, He and his wife Iris served for 14 years as missionaries in Africa and the Middle East. He passed away in December 2014. To finish the series, co-contributor Steve Wayne Thompson, before retiring, was President of Newbold College in England and then Dean of Theology Faculty and a lecturer at Avondale College in Australia. Let's begin reading the introduction. And Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's Matthew 28, verses 18-20, to and it's from the New King James Version. How much plainer could it be? Here is Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, the Jesus whom they worshipped, giving his people, in even the earliest days of the church, their calling and mission. Make disciples in every nation of the world, period. It's not hard either to see the link between these words spoken to the eleven in Galilee and the words spoken to John on the Isle of Patmos years later in Revelation 14 verses 6 to 7. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people, saying with a loud voice, Fear God and give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and springs of water. One could say that the three angels' messages of Revelation 14 are the great commission contextualized for the last days of earth's history. No question, God has told His church, His people, to reach out and spread the gospel to the entire world. It's what we've been called to do, spreading the truth about Jesus and what he has done for us, what he is doing for us now, and what he will do for us in the future, is truly our mission. The word mission itself means ascending or being sent to perform a service. That is, people go away in order to do something. In the case of the Great Commission, what they do is to spread the gospel to the world. This quarter, we will look first and foremost at God's means for communicating the gospel to those who don't know it. Mission is a core part of God's sovereign activity in the process of redeeming humanity. Thus, we will study how God's eternal purpose has been accomplished in the lives of individuals in the Bible whom He has used to be missionaries to the lost. In the end, the Christian mission is God's mission, not ours'. It originated in the heart of God. It is based on the love of God, and it is accomplished by the will of God. To better understand God's commission, commitment, and involvement, this quarter's lessons are based on the following model of salvation history. 1. God created men and women and gave them free will. 2. The first man and woman abused their free will by disobeying God, and they had to leave paradise. 3. God could not use force to bring them back to paradise. for God sent His Son on a mission to die in their place and reconcile them to Him. 5. God's mission is to make the offer of salvation known to all people, and thus open the way for them to have redemption. At its most basic level... Mission is letting the whole world know about Jesus and about what he has done for each of us and about what he promises to do for us now and for eternity. In short, we who know about these promises have been called to tell others about them as well. Sabbath afternoon, June 27. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you again at the beginning of this new quarter. We studied the book of Luke last quarter, but this quarter we're looking at a series of lessons that deals with the outreach that we have, the commission that we have, the mission that we have to take the gospel to the world. And as we look at people in the Bible who fulfilled this role. We pray that we may gain some lessons, but also we may find your will for us personally. Bless us as we study this week, we pray in Jesus' dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 4. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Let's read that again. Isaiah 55 verse 4. See, I have made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander of the peoples. Our world is a mess, and as humans we are the big reason it is such a mess, and that's because we are sinners, fallen creatures whose nature at the core is evil. However much we like to think of ourselves as advancing, as improving, the history of the past century isn't too encouraging. And here we are, not even a quarter of the way into this century, and things don't look that bright from here either. If the past is a precursor to the future, all we can expect, to quote a former British politician, is blood, toil, tears and sweat. All is not lost, though. On the contrary. Jesus Christ has died for our sins, and through his death we have the promise of salvation, of restoration, of all things being made new. As it says in Revelation 21 verse 1, Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. We have not been left alone, abandoned in the infinite expanse of a cold and apparently uncaring cosmos, to fend for ourselves. We could never do it. The forces arrayed against us are so much greater than we are. That's why God had the plan of salvation in order to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. Sunday, June 28, God Created Man and Woman One of the perennial questions humans have asked, where do I come from? In the first two chapters of the Bible, in fact, all through the Bible, we've been given the answer to what many would consider the most important question a person can ask. After all, only by knowing where we come from are we off to a good start in knowing who we are why we exist, how we are to live, and where we are ultimately going. Question. Skim through Genesis chapter 1 and 2, but focus especially on Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. What great differences appear in the creation of humanity as opposed to everything else seen in the texts? What is it about humans that stands out from other parts of this creation? We'll read Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. 1. Man and woman were created last of all the creatures. They had the whole visible creation in front of them to study and care for. 2. God's mode for creating man and woman differed from that of the other creatures. Up to this point, the divine command had been, Let there be light, firmament, water, fish, and birds, animals, etc. Now the command was turned into consultation. Let us make man. The three persons of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, consulted about it. Though these two chapters deal with the creation of the earth and the creatures on it, there's no question that the main focus is on the creation of humanity itself. 3. Man and woman were created in God's image and likeness, something not said about anything else that was created at that time. Though the text doesn't say what it means to be made in the image and likeness of God— it must mean that humans in some way reflect the character of their creator. Because humans have a moral capacity not seen in other creatures, butterflies might be beautiful, but they don't struggle with questions of right and wrong. To be made in the likeness and image of God surely means that to some degree humans must reflect his moral character. And four, man and woman were to have dominion to represent God on earth, to rule over the rest of creation. This calling entails responsibility. And so to finish today, humans are introduced in the Bible in the first chapter, but not in isolation. We exist, but in relationship with God. What does this tell us about how central God should be in our lives, and why we are not really complete without him. And to finish we'll read Acts chapter 17 verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Monday, June 29, Free Will Embedded in the creation account is the warning God gave about not eating from, as it says in Genesis 2.9, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. So right from the start, we can see the moral element granted humanity, something not seen in any of the other living creatures. As we said yesterday, the capacity for moral judgment is one way that humans reveal the image and likeness of God. Question. What does Genesis chapter 2 verses 15 to 17 say about the reality of free will in humanity? Let's read Genesis 2 verse 15, 16 and 17. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. God could have created humans so that they automatically do his will. That is the way the other created things such as light, sun, moon and stars were made. They obey God without any element of choice. They fulfill the will of God automatically through the natural laws that guide their actions. But the creation of man and woman was special. God created them for himself. God wanted them to make their own choices, to choose to worship him voluntarily without being forced to. Otherwise, they could not love him because love, to be true love, must be freely given. Because of its divine origin, human free will is protected and respected by God. The Creator does not interfere with the deepest persistent choices of men and women. Wrong choices have consequences, sometimes very terrible ones too. But it is against the character of our Sovereign Lord to force compliance or obedience. The principle of human free will has three important implications. For religion, an omnipotent God does not unilaterally direct individual will and choices. For ethics, individuals will be held morally accountable for their actions. For science, the actions of body and brain are not wholly determined by cause and effect. Physical laws are involved in our actions, but free will means that we do have a choice regarding our actions, especially moral ones. So to finish today, what are some of the free moral choices you have to make in the next few hours, days, or weeks? How can you be sure you are using this sacred gift in the right way? Think through the consequences of the wrong use of it. Tuesday, June 30, The Fall Genesis chapter 3, verses 6 and 7 reads, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Eating a little fruit is not a sinful act in itself. However, we have to consider the circumstances in which it was carried out. Adam and Eve were agents with a free will made by God in His image. This included the freedom, but also the duty to comply with God's expressed will. They ate the fruit, not out of any stern necessity, but rather by choice. It was an act of Adam's and Eve's own free will, in defiance of God's clear and specific instructions. Likewise, we must choose for ourselves whether or not to follow God, and whether to cherish or to defy the word of God. God will not force anyone to believe His word. He will never force us to obey Him, and He can't force us to love Him. God allows each of us to choose for ourselves which path we will follow. But in the end, we must be prepared to live with the consequences of our choices. By eating the fruit, Adam and Eve, in effect, told God that He was not the perfect ruler. His sovereignty was challenged. They proved disobedient, and as a result, they brought sin and death to the human race. As we read in Genesis three twenty-three and 24, So the Lord God banished him from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. After he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden, cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the Tree of Life. Adam and Eve had to leave paradise. It was a necessary yet merciful consequence. The Lord would not allow rebellious humanity access to the tree of life. With loving care, He kept Adam and Eve away from the fruit that would make them immortal and thus perpetuate the terrible condition into which sin had brought them. Imagine what eternal life would be like in a world filled with such pain and suffering and evil as ours is. Adam and Eve were driven out from the lovely garden to work the less friendly ground outside, as we read in verses 23 and 24. So to finish today, in the context of today's study, read First John chapter 2, verse 16. How were the elements that were warned about in this text seen in the fall? And, In what ways do we have to deal with the same temptations in our lives as well? 1 John 2, verse 16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. Wedding stage, July 1, God's initiative to save us. The Bible shows that after the fall of our first parents, it was God who came looking for them, not vice versa. On the contrary, the man and woman tried to hide themselves from the presence of the Lord. What a powerful metaphor for so much of the fallen human race. They flee the one who comes looking for them, the only one who could save them. Adam and Eve did it in Eden, and unless surrendered to the wooing of the Holy Spirit, people are still doing the same thing today. Fortunately, God did not cast aside our first parents, nor does he cast us aside either. From the time that God first called out in Genesis three nine, where are you, to Adam and Eve in Eden, until today, he is still calling us. Ellen White writes in Steps to Christ, page 68, In the matchless gift of his Son, God has encircled the whole world with an atmosphere of grace as real as the air which circulates around the globe. All who choose to breathe this life-giving atmosphere will live and grow up to the stature of men and women in Christ Jesus. End of quote. Of course, The greatest revelation of God's missionary activity can be seen in the incarnation and ministry of Jesus. Though Jesus came to this earth to do many things, to destroy Satan, to reveal the true character of the Father, to prove Satan's accusations wrong, to show that God's law can be kept, the crucial reason was to die on the cross in the place of humanity in order to save us from the ultimate result of sin – which is eternal death. Question. What do each of these texts teach us about the death of Jesus? First of all, John chapter 3 verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have Eternal life. And Isaiah chapter 53, verses 4 through to 6. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed." All we like sheep have gone astray we have turned every one to his own way and the lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all and second corinthians chapter 5 verse 21 for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of god in him god made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, we've just read. That is what it took in order for us to be made the righteousness of God in him. This idea has been called the great exchange, Jesus taking on our sins and suffering as a sinner so that we, though sinners, can be counted as righteous before God as Jesus himself. THURSDAY JULY 2 – METAPHORS OF MISSION Mission is God's initiative to save lost humanity. God's saving mission is motivated by His love for each one of us. There is no deeper reason for it. God sent Christ on a mission to bring salvation for the whole world. John's Gospel alone contains more than 40 declarations of the cosmic dimension of Christ's mission. Let's, for example, look at John chapter 3 and verse 17. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And also in John chapter 12 and verse 47. And if anyone hears my words and does not believe, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. As Christ was sent by the Father to save the world, He in turn sends His disciples with the words, As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Question. Read Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 and 14. What are the two metaphors used for mission in these texts, and what do they stand for? Matthew 5, beginning at verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavour, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. The metaphors of salt and light express core functions of Christian influence on humanity. While salt operates internally, joining the mass with which it comes in contact... Light operates externally, illuminating all that it reaches. The term earth in the salt metaphor refers to men and women with whom Christians are expected to mix, while the phrase light of the world refers to a world of people in darkness and in need of illumination. The children of Israel were encouraged to live up to the moral principles and health rules that God had given them. They were to be a light, illuminating And attracting. You are a light for the Gentiles, we read in Isaiah 49, verse 6. Their collective existence in a state of health, prosperity, and loyalty to God's Sabbath and other commandments would proclaim to the surrounding nations God's mighty acts of creation and redemption. The nations, observing their prosperity, would approach them and learn to be taught of the Lord. This was the idea, anyway. When Christ came, he also talked about salt, another way to witness. By their influence in the world, Christians are to curb the world's corruption. Unbelievers are often kept from evil deeds because of a moral consciousness traceable to Christian influence. Christians not only have a good influence on the corrupted world by virtue of their presence in it, they also mingle with people in order to share the Christian message of salvation. And so to finish today, how good of a witness are you and your church to the surrounding world? Is the light dimming? Is the salt losing its punch? If so, how can you learn that revival and reformation begin with you personally? Friday, July 3. We have dealt with some aspects of the missionary nature of God. Mission is an enterprise of the triune God. Mission is predominantly related to Jesus Christ, whose incarnation is central to Christian faith and mission. By his life and death, Jesus has paved the way for the salvation of all the human race. We, as his followers, his missionaries, have to let people know the good news of just what Jesus has done for them. As Ellen White writes in Testimonies for the Church, Volume 6, page 29, The Church of Christ on earth was organised for missionary purposes and the Lord desires to see the entire Church devising ways and means whereby high and low, rich and poor may hear the message of truth. Not all are called to personal labour in foreign fields but all can do something by their prayers and their gifts to aid the missionary work. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. One... Think more about the question of origins. Why do origins matter? How can a proper understanding of our origins help us to better understand who we are and what the purpose of our existence really is? 2. How does the following quote help us to understand the existence of free will, love, and evil? in our world, and it comes from Robert J. Spitzer from his book New Proofs for the Existence of God, Contributions of Contemporary Physics and Philosophy. And it's a Kindle edition from Erdman's Publishing Company in 2010, and this quote is from page 233. Thus, if God wants to create loving creatures, in imitation of His perfect love, God has to create free beings who can cause suffering and evil in the world by their choices. The dynamics of love and freedom require that God allow us the latitude to grow in love through our human freedom. God's only alternative to allowing free beings to choose unloving acts is to completely refrain from creating loving creatures. End of quote. And question number three. The death of Jesus was a single act that occurred in a small nation amid the vast Roman Empire almost 2,000 years ago. Yet, this act is of eternal significance for every human being. What responsibility rests on us who know about this act and what it means to tell those who don't know about it? How else will they learn of it if those who know about it don't tell them? Side story. Our mission story this week is titled "The Gun Would Not Fire," Part One, and it's by Max de los Reyes from the Philippines. Fernando Lopez grew up in a town sixty miles south of Manila. Like many in the Philippines, Fernando's family didn't have much money, and like many young boys, Fernando quit school to help his parents by selling small items and running errands. Fernando was active in his church, which helped to ease the boredom he often felt. More than anything, Fernando longed for an education so he could serve God better, but he knew that, humanly speaking, this wasn't possible. Then, one day, Fernando heard about the 1000 Missionary Movement, a program to train volunteer missionaries who serve God for one year in the Philippines or in one of several countries. Excited, Fernando asked his parents permission to join. With their blessing, he applied and was accepted. The training Fernando received helped to fill his desire for education and prepared him to serve God somewhere in the Philippines. When the training phase ended, he eagerly awaited his assignment to a territory, but had mixed emotions when he learned that he was assigned to work in an area some 400 miles from his home. Fernando arrived at his new field and began seeking out those who were interested in learning more about God. Soon he was giving several Bible studies a week. Some of the people taking Bible studies lived in a small settlement in the mountains, a four-hour ride by bicycle from where he stayed. Despite the hardships, Fernando became so involved in his work that he often spent most of his small monthly stipend to buy materials to build a Seventh-day Adventist church, leaving him without money to buy food. This tested his faith and prepared him for even greater tests that would come. But, throughout his experience, his faith in God did not waver. One of Fernando's converts was Julie Tagunod, She and her sister Elsie had studied the Bible with Fernando and then attended his evangelistic meetings. Julie and her sisters had been baptised recently in spite of the objections of Julie's husband, Lem. Fernando knew of Lem's objection to his wife's interest in religion. Lem had forbidden Julie to attend church and had threatened to harm her if she continued going. But Julie stood firm and continued to attend church. Fernando appreciated her sincere desire to honour Christ, and Lem began to ignore Julie's church attendance. Perhaps he realised that his objections would not stop his wife from following Christ. And that's where the story stops, because it's to be continued in next week's Inside Story. Your reader for this week's lesson has been Dr Percy Harold. This lesson is brought to you by the Sabbath School Department, Christian Services for the Blind and Hearing Impaired, and through the services of Adventist Media Network. Remember, God is always faithful.